Hi, everyone, and welcome to the WIM podcast. Women in Influencer Marketing, or WIM for short, is a first-of-its-kind exclusive networking group made up of inspirational women. This podcast is where we explore influencer marketing, advertising trends, and get real about women in business. Our mission is to network, to foster leaders within this exciting industry, and to share information to make our work stronger. That's where this podcast comes in. We'll bring you fresh perspectives on timely topics facing the industry from expert voices in the space. Find us wherever you download podcasts. And of course, you can always find us at IamWim.com. That's IamWim.com. Today, we're speaking with Hannah Taylor, partner at the Advertising, Marketing, and Public Relations Group at the law firm Frankfurt, Kernick, Kleins, and Sells PC. She's also one of the best panelists we've had at one of our live WIM events. So Thank you. Got incredible reviews on you from our last event, and that was the last one we had here in New York. She represents clients in a wide variety of industries, including beauty, entertainment, fashion, music, and many more, counseling brand and agency clients on matters across all media. From traditional commercial channels such as television and print to newer formats such as social media, brands and entertainment, and native advertising. Hannah's also the chair of Frankfurt Carnet's Social Media Task Force. And in this role, she counsels clients and writes and speaks frequently on the legal implications of advertising and social media. She's won a couple awards. She has a couple awards under her belt. Uh, she was recently included on Law 360's 2018 list of top attorneys under 40. She was recognized recognized in the Legal 500 as a next-generation advertising expert and has been awarded the New York Area Rising Star Award in Super Lawyers Magazine for the last four years. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So we seriously got – I got personally so much feedback from the last – a panel event that we had here in New York, people just came up to me like immediately after and they were like, what was her name again? Hannah, Hannah, right? She was so good. She was so knowledgeable. She was so funny. And so no pressure on this podcast. <laughs> you, yeah, you no big deal. bar pretty high. <laughs> Everyone really enjoyed what you had to say. Oh, thanks so much. So, it was so fun. I loved being there. Good. And immediately after that, um, Emily, who produces this podcast, and I, we were like, we have to have her on the podcast. I'm so excited. My podcast debut. Yeah. This is your first one, right? Yeah. That's so exciting. I'm happy to have you here. Um, so I, I feel like it's pretty unique and brilliant on your end to be a lawyer that specializes in the digital space. So when were you first introduced to the social media, uh, and influencer marketing space? So I have to credit my law firm, who is one of the nation's leading advertising firms. Um, and we have one of the biggest practices in the country. And when I got there, um, it was just sort of the beginning of the social media and influencer boom. And when was that? I started about seven years ago. And obviously, social media was already in existence. But many of my colleagues are, you know, in their late 40s and 50s. And their kids use social media. And they, you know, they do too, in, in some capacity. But I think there was room in my group to have somebody that was using it every day that was much more um, tuned into a younger market. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know, what they would often just come in my office and say things like, um, you know, 
how does it work again? Snapchat disappears and after how long? And it wasn't that difficult for me because I was using it in my personal capacity. So I started to really develop an expertise in Mm -hmm. that area. Um, I also decided that I was going to be the person in my law firm to learn all of the platform terms. So I went into every social media platform and read all the rules and community guidelines and privacy policies and everything and got an expertise in that, which, you know, they change all the time and they're so dry. So yeah, I was going to say just like passive reading, so fun on the subway. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So it just developed kind of naturally in that way where mm-hmm. no one else sort of wanted to, wanted to get, you know, into the weeds in that way. And I, I created an opportunity for myself by being willing to to read it all yeah. and learn it. Yeah. No, that's incredible. And I mean, now that you're, you know, you're so knowledgeable in that space, you know, how how does that translate into, you know, your role on a day-to-day? Like, is that exclusively the types of, the type of work that you're working on? Um, it be- It's become a large part of what we all do. I mean, mm-hmm. it started out being kind of like, Hannah should be the social media expert. And now all my colleagues have to be social media experts because it's just so much of where the advertising is right mm-hmm. now. And um, given the FTC's focus on the way influencers and other social media platforms work, it's it's sort of impossible for me to be the only one that does it. So we really all do it. And it's a large part of all of our practices. Um, used to be that you read in any given day a lot of TV scripts, mm-hmm. um, looked at radio. We still do that some, but digital is definitely where it's at. So a lot of what I'm doing is trying to figure out, you know, okay, you're going to show me this storyboard and you're going to show me that it's going to look this way, but how is it actually going to look on mobile? Or, you know, we worry about disclosures. Someone says, um, a talent says, I'm going to put the hashtag ad in the third line when I'm posting on social media. But then when it actually gets posted, the the mass um, audience can only see it on the second line before the more button. We worry a lot about, is that sufficient? Is that clear and conspicuous? And so, yeah, it's a lot of what I'm doing. And so talk to me a little bit about who, like specific, not just, you don't need a name drop, but, you know, who your clients are, like who you're working on behalf of. Because I'm curious, you know, you say, you know, you're getting into the nitty gritty of like, the the verbiage and what line you're, you know, the the influencer is disclosing on. So I'm curious, like, use cases and, and these conversations and who you're having those conversations with. Absolutely. So we represent everybody in the advertising space. We ha- represent some influencers. Um, but usually when we're having this type of conversation about where it, sh- it actually should be posted, it's with a brand who's hiring somebody and we're trying to figure out what the contract should say and how specific we should get about what we think complies with the FTC. Because as you know, um, for a long time, it was really the brands that were getting in trouble for um, failure to disclose. Now we've seen since 2017 some onus on the influencers themselves to also um, – post correctly. And we've seen some attention from the FTC with, you know, directed at influencers and talent directly. But for a long time, we would say when we would represent brand clients, we would say you really have to get very granular in figuring out, especially at the contract level, what you expect from your talent. Where do you want the post to be? Do you want it to be hashtag ad? Do you want it to be an organic disclosure? Um, You know, talking to them about how the FTC doesn't like hashtag spawn anymore or other abbreviated um, disclosures. So we really get very granular in order because the FTC has gotten very granular, right? We've gotten some some real guidance about what to do and not to do. So we try to counsel at that level of granularity. Yeah, no. And so speaking of, I think that, 
you know, I feel like that's such a hot button topic that people are still somewhat unclear about. Like, how do you advise people? I mean, because it really just is that you're advising them based on those few words. Absolutely. And and so I'm just guessing and correct me if I'm wrong, and I'd love to hear more about it. But are you advising them and just essentially saying, well, here are your risks um, and basing that on also their goals of what they're looking to accomplish? Um, but what do those conversations sound like? Yeah, that's a great question. I think for a long time, we only had the clear and conspicuous standards. So we really were doing risk assessments all the time and sort of going with our gut on what we'd seen in past FTC actions that weren't influencer specific, but were similar to um, failure to disclose properly. And we were kind of giving our best guess at what the FTC would think. In recent years, the FTC has been, you know, I don't think as prescriptive as industry would like, but we have seen more attention in that area. And we've kind of gleaned some rules from what we've seen the FTC say. So for example, um, we know that they think that hashtag ad in contexts where it actually is an ad is clear. And as long as it it sits in a place that's before someone has to click more, that's considered clear and conspicuous. We've heard that from the FTC. But I will interrupt you for a second and say that most ad like has sponsored posts that I see on Instagram, for example, hashtag ad is still at the very end of Absolutely. a very long caption. Right. So – what, how how does that work? <laughs> right. So I think different brands are or and influencers are taking different positions about what they think is um, likely to garner FTC attention. So, you know, some people think, well, I'm disclosing, so I'm not the worst out there. Some people don't disclose at all. So I probably am not the low-hanging fruit for regulatory attention, even though I'm not doing it 100% perfectly, right? I mean, I'm sure the FTC would love it if you put hashtag ad as the very first thing in the post. Almost no brands are doing that, right? No, They're taking it's so ad. It's just blatantly an ad. It just doesn't read correctly, right? It reads. I mean, and then you have some clients, like pharmaceutical companies or clients that are willing to take less risk, that do put it at the front. And all of that is just sort of a risk continuum. And I think you're right that some people have decided the disclosure's there. It might be buried, but at least it's there. We can't be the worst. The problem is, though, that when we saw in 2017, the FTC said, <clears throat> excuse me, send 90 letters to both industry and influencers about what they thought was problematic. Some of them did actually have disclosures. They just had them too low. Mm-hmm. So we're not we're very clear with our clients that that's not necessarily a safe harbor. Just having it in there buried has been something that the FTC has been clear about not being sufficient. So, mm-hmm. you know, it just depends on kind of what the client's risk tolerance is. Also, you don't have to use a hashtag. If what you want is to not put a hashtag ad in there or include the hashtag very low, there are other ways to make it clearer. Maybe use the branded content tool in addition to a hashtag ad. Maybe say something in the post that makes the relationship clear instead of waiting for the hashtag, like so excited to be partnering with X brand. And then you're not relying on where to place the hashtag or worrying about whether or not it's in the right space because the the content of the post itself is clear. So I have these conversations very frequently where, you know, clear and conspicuous to me could absolutely be an example of what you just said. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm partnering with such and such brand, but I would say nine times out of 10, 
were getting pushback from the brand saying like that's not good enough. It has to be, you know, hashtag sponsored, hashtag, you know, ad or whatever the case may be. So, but, you know, I, I think that it, the, all of this talk is around having like the, the reason for it is to have a successful advertising campaign. Absolutely. And so if that is, you know, the ultimate goal and mitigating risk at the same time, that has to be kept in mind as well. And so, you know, to have it be a more subtle sell, advertising is sales at the end of the day, you know, I feel like this is a really important conversation to have because if that achieves the 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 successful advertising that you're looking for and it discloses enough and it's acceptable you know i feel like more people should be aware that it is acceptable in the first place and just having these types of conversations versus we're stuck in our ways it's hashtag ad end of conversation right i think what happens is that because there's so much regulatory attention around this issue which i think surprised a lot of people that this would be something that the ftc would be so focused on a lot of legal and compliance departments don't have the opportunity to review every post to make sure that the specific organic disclosure is working. So they create a rule that is easy enough and they're sure will as you know work for every post. So it, a lot of times it, it it sort of robs the opportunity for getting creative and I'm sure that that's difficult, but it's also probably busy legal departments trying to do their best to 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 create a rule that they know works. For sure. And, for sure. Yeah. And I I do see um some confusion in that area because the FTC has said that some of those more organic disclosures don't work, like Thanks Brand, which people were using for a long time. Mm -hmm. The FTC said in 2017, that's not clear because you could just be thanking a brand for being awesome, like, oh, thanks for making this wonderful product. It's not necessarily communicating that you got something for free. So I think internal legal teams are trying to remove ambiguity and just say, just use hashtag ad or hashtag sponsored in a clear place because then we don't have to spend so much time with each post wondering whether or not it's compliant. But I hear sure. you. It If what you're going for is to have more sort of creative and rich and less cookie cutter posts, it definitely would be great if there were enough, if there was enough bandwidth to review every post to make sure it was communicating what you needed to communicate sure. correctly. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think that's a great point and that makes a lot of sense, right? So my my follow-up question to you is when it comes to what's deemed acceptable since they haven't explicitly written that ahead of time are probably just cases getting, you know, ruled upon and saying like, well, Ultimately, we decided in this specific case that this was not acceptable or is acceptable since they're not giving these examples ahead of time. So what are you, what are you advising people and how are these conversations going? Because I feel like, you know, there are certain brands that are just operating on a much more conservative level mm -hmm. and there are some that are just willing to take more risk. Um, how do those conversations go and, and, you know, what do they sound like? Yeah. So one thing that we really like to do in my practice area is to do what makes the most sense for the brand and be very specific and in the weeds with their own risk profile, their own product type, what they're trying to achieve with their messaging. And so we actually, you know, I know you said at the beginning of the of the session, you know, you really get that detailed. You really go to that level of granularity and we do. Um, so we don't have a one size fits all guidance. What we do is we look at the situation and say, in this specific instance, we think this this works and this is enough. Um 
One thing that's also really tricky about advertising and advertising law is that it is all context specific. So it's very hard to create rules that work for every piece of advertising because the font size might be different. The You might have white as a background in one instance and then all of a sudden you can't see the disclosure. You might have someone who's looking at their phone. Like my mom has very big font type, right? So she blows her phone up really big, which means that the disclosure – ends up being after the more button much more frequently than it does on my phone because her font's much larger. So all that we have to do each time is really think about every single factor. So we don't really have the same conversation with every client. You know, it's literally what is your objective? Who's the influencer? What's the messaging? What platform are you using? What is the What's the language you're hoping to get? Are you willing to use a hashtag? I mean, it's that specific every time. And then we actually ask to look at the post once it's posted to see if it's working in the way that we thought it would. Because Mm -hmm. as you know, when you go on Instagram and you're in the sort of post mode, Mm -hmm. it looks very different. You might have different line breaks than you do when you actually press post. So Mm -hmm. we really want people to look at it both pre and post to make sure that it's it's working in the That's way that you so thought it would. interesting. And so also from a technical level, um, are you – like with brands that you're working with, for example, in what capacity are you working with them? Like are you on retainer and sort of like handling their like master services agreements or are you really like new, like working on a campaign basis with them both? both? Yeah. So we do – you know, it's funny. Most types of lawyers are – are sort of named by the type of law that they practice. Like I'm a litigator or I'm a corporate lawyer. We are advertising lawyers, which is named after an industry. And that's a little bit odd. But what that means is we do everything that's involved in the advertising business. We do all the master service agreements between agencies and brands. We do all the talent agreements. We do all the production work, you know, making sure that all the releases are done, that you can use people's voices, that the props are cleared. We do Screen Actors Guild work. Um, and then we we actually do campaign counseling. So send us all your storyboards, your potential post um, images and all the comments that you think you're going to do. And we look at everything. So, you know, ver- from very big to very small. Yeah. I just feel like that's so useful from a brand perspective, an agency perspective. I just feel like what you do is so specialized and unique, like very unique at the same time that you specialize in this, that it's so important that people, some people probably don't even know that your services are available, you know, someone with such expertise. That's absolutely true that um, it's kind of a, you know, you go to the same conferences and you see all the same people. There are very few lawyers that do this. We all know each other. Um, We know the lawyers at the FTC. We know the lawyers at the NAD. They know us. I mean, it's a very small community. That's absolutely true. Um, But I think once people realize that that service is available, we end up hearing from even new clients so much because people realize how much risk there is in this area that they weren't even focused on. Mm -hmm. And they tend to, you know, try to use us in in really significant ways, which is great for us. And so when do influencers hire you? So we have a talent practice um, in addition to representing brands and agencies. So we have two floors in our office, and we like to talk about the sort of difference between the lawyers that work on the two floors. Mm-hmm. I work on the ninth floor, which is the advertising floor. And then the 10th floor, uh, we call entertainment, even though what advertising – advertising is also a form of entertainment, but we just split it up in that way. Um, 
And they tend to have a more traditional entertainment practice, movies, TV, reality stars. Um, but they have a significant talent representation practice. You know, they represent big movie stars and directors. And as part of that, some significant models and influencers. So, you know, it's funny. Sometimes we're on opposite sides of sort – I mean, we're never on the opposite side of a deal because that's a legal conflict. But we are often thinking about things from the opposite side, you know, vehemently pro-talent or vehemently pro-brand. And we have these really exciting intellectual discussions about who's responsible for what and how the risk should fall. And so it's fun and it's nice to all work together because we, you know, we can – disagree and also really enrich each other's practices by knowing the different perspectives. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, I think that, like, I don't know if that's unique, but it sounds really um, beneficial for it's you, great. your whole law firm, because you guys kind of sort of challenge each other and give each other, like, real-life examples of, you know, things that come up and that'll inform each other. Absolutely. And even in the advertising group, we have some people that focus more on brands and some people that focus more on agencies. And we see, you know, people vehemently opposed to taking a certain position about what the agency should indemnify for versus what a brand should. So it's it keeps us all really um, focused on the issues in a way where we don't just get into a rut where we think, our you know, stick our feet in the mud and say our position is right. We're constantly being challenged by our own colleagues, which is really great. And it's such a ever changing in like oh, gosh, industry, yes. always. So it's it's very. I mean, it's even better in that capacity to just like have that mindset that you're always, you know, you're always thinking about things, and you never really become complacent about you know or set in in your ways. Yeah, and that's one thing that's hard about specializing in social media is that it just constantly changes. I mean, you learn about how Instagram works, and then the next day, you know. There's a swipe up and then the next day stories can be archived. You know, it's just – it's always changing. So it keeps it really exciting but it's also, um, you know, never never boring. Um, we also have a, a meeting that we do. All the advertising lawyers get together once a month and we sit around a table and we just talk about what we're seeing, what's changing, what we're working on, what's been hard. And so we educate each other um, constantly on sort of new developments and industry and in law. So it's cool. I love that. And so to sum up this part, if you were to say, you know, sum up the FTC piece in a sentence or two, what would you tell people listening today? I think I would say that context matters. So the the rule that we give is the the disclosure, whether it's in a hashtag or a natural language, needs to be clear and conspicuous and above the more button. Mm-hmm. So as long as somebody is look can look at a post, and I often say, think about your grandmother, right? Like, no, I'm sure there are some very internet Instagram savvy grandmothers out there, <laughs> but mine happens to not be. If she were to look at a post, the theory that I have when I'm advising is, would she understand that this is something that somebody paid to have said? And that is the best rule of thumb. I think sometimes we all work in this industry so much that we convince ourselves that everybody understands what all of our insider talk is. You know, everyone knows what hashtag spawn is. Everyone knows what hashtag SP is. And we kind of all got to step back and look at it from 50,000 feet and think, what is the most obvious thing we could say to let someone know that this is a sponsored post? Got it. 
So clear and conspicuous and above the more button, yes. above the fold. Right? And grandma test. And grandma tested <laughs> and grandma approved. <laughs> um, and so, you know, at the whim event that you were on, it was a really interesting conversation. Speaking of talent, you know, of like the next generation of talent, you know, the next generation of influencers. So at that event specifically, we talked about, you know, pet influencers and, you know, how does, you know, a dog sign a contract like what are like how does what are the you know nuances of that um having a dog or a cat work on a campaign cgi influencers you know influencers that aren't even real like such interesting conversations so you know what are your thoughts on the the next generation of influencers and how that works in regards to legal implications yes we're thinking about this all the time for exactly the reasons that you said it is it is happening. The future is here, right? Um, when Shudu and um, all the other CGI influencers became, you know, a big deal in our industry, we immediately started thinking not just about how cool and interesting it was, but about the legal implications. Because I know as we spoke about it at our WIM event, you know, we're thinking all the time, if Shudu, I'm just picking on Shudu, but any of them, if, if they um, are going to be hired by a makeup company to launch the new lipstick. And then there's a picture on Instagram of one of them wearing a lipstick. You know, we're thinking all the time, is that really a fair demonstration of the lipstick? Because how a lipstick looks on a robot is not necessarily how it's going to look on a person. So we're worried about the false advertising implications of using CGA influencers. Um, We talked for most of the beginning of this podcast about um, how to disclose if something is sponsored if someone is a robot or something is a robot and you don't necessarily know who's behind the account, how do you know if there's a material connection that needs to be disclosed? Is it that the owner or controller of the CGI influencer, you know, has the has the relationship with a brand and how do you disclose that since it's not really the influencer that has the relationship? I mean, these are things that we're thinking about all the time. Um we all, there's also a rule as part of the FTC's endorsement guides that says that to be an endorser of a product, you have to have um, sort of real experience with the product and have to have be a, what they call a bona fide user of the product. And we think a lot about, well, how does that really work if you are a robot and you can't really have worn Chanel clothes. Or if you're a dog and you're like advertising uh, like a vacuum cleaner, like the dog isn't running the vacuum cleaner. Like Exactly. Yeah. So we're thinking about that a lot. I mean, I think there has to be some common sense element to to being a lawyer in this space and thinking, you know, if you are Doug the Pug and you're and you're sort of posting, <laughs> it sounds so silly because obviously <laughs> Doug the Pug is not posting, but if the account is is has been hired to you know sponsor a vacuum cleaner i think the average consumer that's looking at that post understands that Doug the puck did not use the vacuum cleaner so right we need to have some level of common sense but it's a bit odd because there's money that's still being exchanged and there's still value a lot of money a lot of money exactly there's still value for the brand so we kind of have to think through what makes sense for the average consumer if the rule is that someone should understand that what's being posted might be biased because money was changing hands. I think there are still ways to communicate that without getting so confused or sort of turned around by the fact that you're dealing with a robot or a dog. We kind of just have to to use common sense and think, okay, still need to make it clear that there's a relationship here, but we have to do it in a way that kind of makes sense. 
And is there anything to add there? You know, because I feel like there's some common sense things, but like, again, at the end of the day, I, I keep coming back to, you know, the reason that all of this is being done in the first place is to sell product. And so in order to have an effective advertising campaign, it needs to – it's usually subtle advertising is usually the most effective or um, at the very least it it just needs to be, you know, creating buzz around the product or being excited, you know, to purchase it or whatever the case may be. Um, and so to be able to to juggle, you know, ha- all these rules and still maintain this level of creativity and um, and effective salesmanship is so tricky. It's very tricky. Yeah. And I think you know, sort of the pushback of industry, not the not the pushback, but the sort of reaction from industry that says like it's bad advertising if we have to disclose, is the exact thing that the FTC is worried about because. What they don't want is for it to be so sort of sexy and organic that people remain confused about whether or not it was paid for, right? So I think oftentimes what we try to do – and I've heard the FTC at conferences and stuff say that they're fine with the organic disclosure. They're fine with keeping it light and fun as long as it's clear. So you know, if if there's pushback that the hashtag looks just like a – a slug that's ugly and, you know, disruptive, I think it's fine to still keep it light and organic. It's just takes more work on everybody's part to make sure that the light and organic communication is doing doing and, its job. And so what about like the branded hashtag tool? Like, is that enough? That's enough, right? I'm, that's so interesting because it explicitly says like a paid advertise it by this brand. Like, how could that not be enough? I know. So that's, we've heard that from so many different people. So right after the branded content tool got invented. Um, I think industry was so excited, exactly as you know you are, that this was going to be the solution to everybody's woes. Um, and very soon after that, the FTC released this piece of guidance called What People Are Asking. It was updated for 2017, the questions that they were getting most frequently at the commission about sort of the stuff that you're asking. How do we disclose appropriately? When do we have to? What do you consider to be the rules in 2017's market? And one of the things that they said was, while the branded content tool is great, don't rely on it to make the disclosure or or basically that it, it might be doing the job, but it's up to industry to prove that it that it's working. Mm-hmm. So we don't yet have a consumer use study that shows that people understand or see it. You know, think about Instagram. You're, you're flipping through so quickly. Not everybody sees it. Um, it's not in a very bright font. It's you know it's sort of blended into the the platform look and feel. So I think they weren't saying don't use it. They were just saying it's not a proven safe harbor. It's not the answer that everyone's looking for yet. And that's so. And that's also really interesting because you know the branded hashtag or the branded uh, tool you know paid that it says like paid by a certain brand or you know whatever. I mean, that's a platform decision. That's a, a thing that was ruled out by the platform. That's not an FTC thing. The FTC is just coming in and commenting on its effectiveness. Exactly right. mm-hmm. And so wouldn't that be interesting if, you know, Instagram had more 
conversations and maybe a, a really a closer relationship with the FTC to be able to just like come up with a solution together. Um, I don't know what those like. I assume they have a, a com- you know conversations with them, but you know this is a perfect example of you know they weren't aligned, um, and it's confusing to people who want to use it because especially if it's like essentially endorsed by a platform, you know and. Obviously, the intention of it is to disclose that it's a paid partnership. I feel like many people would assume like, oh, well, this is the solution. This is this is acceptable. Uh, but you're saying exactly the opposite, that it, it's not. I'm not yeah. alone. Right. And so not it's alone. not. Or not yet. Not I yet. I think, it, you know, whoever wants to be the the entity to put millions of dollars behind running a, a test that shows the consumers understand that that paid content, the branded content tool, I think that would be really compelling evidence to the FTC. It's just nobody has – what the FTC is saying is that no, we don't yet know if that's working and nobody's run a test to show that it is. So, and so I have a question for mm-hmm. you. So if somebody runs that test and it fails, what are they risking? Well, that I think that's a huge piece of why nobody does, sure. right? <laughs> and it's also hard because – those branded content tools are technically required to advertise on the platform. So you have these two, you have this push and pull, right? You have Instagram telling you if you're going to do a sponsored post, you have to use our tool. And then you have your internal lawyers telling you that tool's not enough. So, you know, do you do both? Do you put the branded content tool on and then also do a hashtag ad? I mean, I think we're in this space right now where people don't really know what to do, um, which obviously is why, you know, I'm sitting at this table because there's so much confusion. I think, um, you know, Instagram is unlikely to, to, Instagram's not the FTC, right? They're not a regulator. So while they could definitely ask you to take down your post, it's, I think a lot of people make the assumption that it's more, um, it's easier to not comply with the Instagram platform terms than it is to to do something that's not FTC compliant. So we've seen a lot more focus on inc- inclusion of hashtag ad in the clear and conspicuous place than we've seen, you know, insurance to use the branded content tool. And so what really are that like how much money have people had to pay in fines and like, you know, what are the real repercussions of not following the rules and being called out as a, you know, as someone who didn't follow them? So we haven't seen a lot of fines and actually get this question a lot. Um, what the FTC has done in these cases so far is um, enter into what we call a consent order, which is basically like a settlement between the FTC and the brand um, or the influencers, as the case may be in one of the one of the cases. And um, what that often does is create a right of audit for the FTC, which is very – it's a lot for a brand or an influencer to have the government be able to basically look into your documents and your files. And in some cases, the audit can audit period can be as long as 20 years. Gosh. So, right. So you could be at a real competitive disadvantage if you know that the government is going to have access to all of your, you know, legal decisions and business decisions. So, um, and then, you know, if you, if you enter into quit, into a consent order, then if you violate it, there can be monetary penalties. And the FTC can, you know, in certain instances bring fines. But it's it's not really – it has huge economic implications but not necessarily in fines in, in sort of competitive disadvantage and public, you know, embarrassment given the fact that 
you it becomes very famous in our industry who gets these letters and stuff. So it's a very big deal. It's just not you know, I think sometimes people think, oh, well, it's the cost of doing business. Pay the million dollars and move on. And we often have to tell people to slow down because having a consent order where it's 20 years of government inquiry is actually a lot more hardcore than in certain instances than just paying a fine and having it go away. That's so interesting, though. I mean, we talk about this stuff all the time. I would have assumed that, you know, the biggest risk is that, you know, oh, my gosh, you have to drop all this money in fines. So it's so interesting that that hasn't been the case. Like, essentially, it sounds like you get, like, a warning letter, you know, before you're maybe, like, asked to pay fines specifically um, or something to that effect. Is that wrong? Yeah. So, well, it depends. Okay. Not to be a lawyer, but it depends. <laughs> so some people get a warning letter. And if you get a warning letter, it basically just says sort of like what the 90 letters were for the FTC, where they say, please stop doing this. It's wrong. Right. We're officially warning you. There are no repercussions from that other than you're on the FTC's radar. And if you continue to be a bad actor, you could end up in a, a real sort of – they could sue you. Mm-hmm. Um, the The bigger things that we've seen happen for people like Lord & Taylor or Warner Brothers – um, are real cases where us not just they weren't just warned, but they actually there was a real legal action and a settlement ensued. And the agreement with the FTC as part of the settlement was that they wouldn't do anything like this for twenty years, and that the FTC would have an opportunity to make sure that that was that that stayed true. And so that twenty year audit period is very hard for a big company because. You know, most of the time, as I'm sure you know from working with lawyers, you might say to your lawyer, what do you think here? And the lawyer might say, I don't love it, but it's probably low risk. But if you know that the government has the opportunity to look at all the decisions that you're making, you might not even take low risk, right? You might decide to be much more streamlined and conservative to try to make sure that there aren't any issues. And so you really end up at a competitive disadvantage because all your competitors get to make you know, risk assessments that are more favorable to them and you are constantly worried that the government's going to see what you're doing. And I think also to what you were saying before, like that would affect me if I were a brand and and deter me from being more risky. And what, what But what you said specifically in regards to, you know, from an optics standpoint and that, you know, the handful of brands that have gotten into hot water, like – you know, they start to – it's like a little bit of a negative connotation uh, of of having been at the forefront of that, you know, misstep. Um, yep. And that just doesn't look good also, you know, from, from so many – in so many ways. You know, we talk about subtle advertising and now the whole world is like, well, Nordstrom, you know, does all of these, you know, ads. And it's just – it's like a snowball effect about how people might – think negatively about the space and and uh, and connect it to that specific brand. Absolutely. And the fines can come in if then you enter into that settlement and then you don't do what you say you're going to do. So say that you enter into the settlement and then your advertising comes out without any disclosure again, then the money comes and it can be real money. So And so what is real money? Well, I think it's fined per violation. So it can just add – I mean think about one social media post you know, can add up. Sure, sure, definitely. Um, and so just to kind of touch back on, you know, CGI influencers and, you know, pet influencers, I mean, what do you 
I would love to be a fly on the wall on those conversations because <laughs> I just feel like it's coming up with the most ridiculous scenarios. It's true. Um, and who would have ever thought we'd be having these conversations, you know, about like, you know, what rules to follow because this person isn't even real. And like, who would get in trouble if, you know, if this is an issue? I would assume that it's the creator of the, like, I'm just assuming. The yeah, creator I am too. The... I mean, we haven't seen, right? But there's no yeah. other person to go after. I mean, you can't go after the pet or the robot. So, right. It has <laughs> wouldn't to get the, very far. <laughs> right, exactly. It has to be the person who's behind it, which is a huge piece of why we worry about material connection disclosures with the person controlling the account because mm-hmm. they're the real entity that's controlling it, right? So... Um, that's part of what makes it confusing. But it is fascinating. Like, you know, for a CGI influencer to advertise, you know, for a, a lipstick, like you're saying, or like a pair of shoes or something, it's like they've never used it. Yet, you know, like you said, to promote a product, I don't forgot the terminology that you said, but essentially they're supposed to be what a bona fide user yep. of it. Um, and like, to, you know, but it also goes back to what you're saying, like common sense, like people who follow those accounts, they know that it's not a real, I mean, I would assume well, some of them look pretty real, actually. So maybe not everybody and knows that's that they're exactly, not real. Yeah, that's a, you hit the nail right on the head because I think that many people know that they're not real, but not everybody. Like your grandma might not right, know. Right, your grandma might not know. Now, then it? again, she might not be following Shudu on Instagram, but she could come across some instance of Shudu on a billboard or something and not know. So, you know, we get a lot of questions like why why does somebody not have to say that they're – that why do they not have to use hashtag ad on TV? Because it's just as much of a celebrity appearing in an ad on behalf of a brand and yet there's no disclosure requirement. And the FTC – you know, says in the endorsement guides, people understand when a show stops and a 30-second commercial comes on that that's advertising space. Mm, so I, I think that, um, you know, it's sort of like what you said about CGI influencers. The world might change where people understand way more mm-hmm. about what's going on. But until they do, we need these mechanisms to make sure that they're understanding. And, you know, I think it, it, when it, it might become more commonplace for robots to, you know, be advertisers of products. But in a certain way, that might become more confusing because then you really don't know who's human and who's not. So we're just going to have to kind of wait and see. Blowing my mind. Yeah, blowing my mind too. I know, it's crazy. (laughs) That is so crazy. Um, And so, you know, no matter the type of influencer, the niche or otherwise – Follower and engagement fraud is something I would love to talk about. It seems to be such a hot topic across yep. the board. Um, it it comes up frequently on my end, you know, representing talent. We talk about it a lot in WIM because people it, – it's discussed all the time and like it's almost gotten to the point where it almost seems like most influencers are, you know, buying followers or, you know, they have bots that follow find their account. I, I don't want to like, I never want to think ill of, of people that everybody buys them. But there's I mean, there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of pressure to keep up to, you know, as everybody's growing and growing to, to just maintain certain levels of engagement and um, follower counts. So um, have you come across, you know, fraud, follower and engagement fraud with your clients? Um, and how do you manage it from a, co- a contract perspective? So we have a provision 
in our influencer agreements, whenever we're hiring social media talent, that asks the talent to represent and warrant, so both promise then and promise going forward, that they won't have engaged in any fraudulent behavior, whether it's buying followers, um, messing with engagement numbers. And what that does is it connects to our termination right. So if we find out at any point that they bought followers or that any of the numbers that they presented to us and us being interested in hiring them turned out to be fake, we, we have the right to to fire them and fire them without payment. Um, that said, I think the you know, it's going to be interesting to watch how the industry unfolds. I think buying followers makes sense in a world where followers is all that any brand cares about. But I think brands are getting much smarter that how many followers you have really doesn't translate to how well you can sell their products or how engaged of an audience you can create. And so I think that that's a really good step forward to realize that a lot of these sort of like rote metrics are not the way to figure out whether or not someone is going to be a good a good influencer for you. Of course, you know, they're always going to be fraudulent mechanisms to make yourself seem better. That's been, you know, it's like writing on your resume that you went to Harvard. I mean, it's just always been true. And I'm not sure we're ever going to eradicate that entirely. But I do think the smarter brands get at measuring things that are really true to success, they're going to be harder to, to, to mess with, right? Like how much do your fans love you? Things like that, that you just can't. Sentiment. Sentiment. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and that stuff's not not corrected by contract and it's not, you know, fudged by bots. It's really something you can't fake. And the value of the content itself, you know, the content itself. I mean, some content creators are incredible content creators. Um, and, you know, maybe they just have this incredible look or, you know, they have a, a family that is just so spot on for where the brand is is looking to – is how the brand is looking to advertise and the look and the feel and the aesthetic of what they're looking to achieve. And so, you know, especially – I mean, these days, I would, I would venture to say that most brands, it seems like the value is the content itself because Absolutely. what I'm seeing is, sure, they're posting it on the influencers' platforms, but they are putting a ton of paid advertising behind it mm -hmm. um, and boosting and whitelisting and all of those things. Um, way more frequently than even a year ago. And so that would indicate to me that it, it, it's a little bit less about the influencer's page and their engagement and their following and more about the image itself or the video itself and how effective that piece of content can be to sell product. Um, and so from that perspective, you know, I, I, I almost hope that it becomes a little less important because I – to your point earlier – I hope that influencers feel less pressure to act in a fraudulent way. Of course. You know, um, and I feel like it, it – I hope that it goes back to the root of what this is at its core, which is creating content and, and creating really interesting images and videos um, that communicate a message and, and sell product in an effective way um, – because the fraudulent piece of it is so disappointing, um, it's such a it's such a like a you know a, a negative strike on our industry. And I feel like, 
you know, we're still essentially kind of trying to prove ourselves as an industry. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel, I feel like we've come such a long way, but there's still people who are like, oh, influencers, like influencers, like what is that and that industry? And like, you know, that's just a flash in the pan and it's going to end. And I feel like, you know, the the onset of all of this fraudulent, you know, this fraudulent piece of it is just like giving a, a, we're trying to prove ourselves and it's setting us so far backwards. Um, and so, you know, I hope that in your contracts that you are really looking to be strict and and Absolutely. combat that because I feel like as an industry, it's going to benefit everybody in the long run. Yeah. And I think what you said is really smart and true. One of the things that we've been focused on a lot in recent contracts is the ability of the brand to repurpose the influencer's content. And it's absolutely true that it their follower count will be less important the more that we just have the ability to, you know, boost it or whitelist it or put it anywhere that we want to where it's not just sitting on the page of the influencer. Um, you know, it's interesting to see kind of the way in which followers matter in the future. If it, But if I I not to be cynical, but if it's not followers, it's something else, right? I mean, people are always going to be um, sort of trying to keep up with what's going to get them hired, and I think brands just need to. I love this trend of the nano influencer, where you know doesn't even matter really how many followers you have. You brands understanding that if you have real significance and influence in your community, that's going to be enough to sell in really important spaces and. You know, then followers just really don't matter as much. Yeah, definitely, definitely. You know, I I hope that conversations like this, and I hope that you know, you know, meeting like in person events like we have at WIM, and just having these conversations will just bring awareness to people about everything that we're talking about. Because I almost feel like since they're not taking the lead about, you know, giving us specific rules, I feel like if we all just sort of band together and just say, like, this is kind of what we deem is appropriate and acceptable and we're just as a group going to collectively make decisions and and dictate our own industry and self-regulate it to a certain extent while, you know, trying to comply as much as possible with FTC guidelines. Like, I almost feel like that's more powerful um, because I, I just feel like that would certainly combat people being, you know, confused. I feel like the confusion isn't really confusion about what that means. It's just not wanting to misstep, like not wanting to be that person to... Of course. Trying to be a good actor and then realizing you're accidentally not is very frustrating. There's so many people that are actively trying to commit fraud that is very hard for legitimate influencers and advertisers to feel like they're doing their best and they're still not doing it correctly. And I think uh, I'm looking forward to the day where that is not a feeling that people have who are really trying to do the right thing and are still worried that they might, you know, there's enough uncertainty in the industry that they still feel like they might not do well. Yeah. And I don't know. I just, I've always said in life, like, you can't make decisions out of fear. You you definitely don't make, you know, great decisions out of fear, you know? And I feel like that's what all of this is. It's just this, this apprehension of, of, taking the wrong step and being that person. And a lot of people who work in this industry work in silos and don't know what other people are doing. And so they're just waiting for this big story to erupt so that they can then, you know, adjust based on that. But wouldn't it be great if we didn't have to get to that point, we could all kind of like share information with each other and sort of like self-regulate, you know? Yeah. That's part of the reason why my law firm tends to do a lot of public speaking and training just so that 
we can help people get to a place where they feel more comfortable, even if it's not a bright line rule. There are some there. There's enough, as you said, sort of post hoc guidance that's come out from the cases and from, you know, the advisory letters that we've seen from the FTC and some of their guidance that we at least know something about what they want. Mm -hmm. So just more education. More education on a daily basis. So my last question of today for you, um, this is a little bit more personal. Um, What do you wish that somebody had told your younger self that would have given you a professional or personal advantage today? That's a great question. I think um, one thing that has really helped me, and we've already sort of talked about this, is having a specialty. Um, When I started practicing law, I was a generalist. And I felt, and that works for some people, and that's great. But for me, I really think I started to thrive when I dug deep into one specific area and really got, you know, I I was really interested in it and I got kind of really in the weeds. Um, And I think there's a lot of pressure when you're first starting out to feel like you need to know everything, to feel like you need to be the master of all domains, jack of all trades. And I just think you actually, at least for me, I wish someone had told me a lot earlier, like it's okay to narrow your focus and then to get really good at whatever it is you choose because people will come to you. I mean, look at sitting at this table and you saying, you know, that's such a specific area. It is very specific, but it's also really useful right now to a lot of different people. And so I wish I'd been less afraid of specializing and and had done it you know, sooner. I'm just glad I did. Yeah, that's so good. I love that advice. So where can everybody find you if they want to ask you more questions and get in touch with you? So um, my email, should I send my email? Yeah, sure, if you're comfortable with that. Of course. My email is htaylor, H-T-A-Y-L-O-R, at fkks.com, fkks.com. Um, Hannah Taylor, uh, you can also Google Hannah Taylor at Frankfurt Kernan and find me. My All my info is there. Um I'm active on social media, but I tend to be private in a lot of places. So we can become my friend if you request me. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm I'm around. I speak all the time at large advertising industry conferences. I'm um, where can we find conferences that you're at? Is that posted on the firm's website? Yeah, it's posted on the firm's website, which is fkks fkks dot com. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm active in the um, ANA influencer. Uh, group. So if anyone is not part of that and wants to join, it's a really great um, industry association of people in the advertising group world who who want to learn more about influencers. Um, so yeah. Come. And of course, you're in the private Facebook whim group. And always. So yes. if someone wants to ask you a question, they could always tag you there and kind of DM you in a way. Absolutely. I'm yeah. there. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, Thank great. you so, so much Thanks for being for on the podcast me. today. You were fantastic. Great. I'm so glad. It was really fun. Thanks for cool. having me. Thank you everyone so much for listening. If you liked what you heard today, don't forget to subscribe and share this podcast. We love comments. So comment on this podcast and we may shout you out on our next episode. Join us next time and thanks for tuning in.